Economist Teaching Show. I'm your host, Danielle Alana. Here on the podcast, we'll be talking all things education. You guys know we'll be discussing the good, the bad, the ugly parts of public education and every hot mess moment in between. Most importantly, when you join me for a podcast episode, I hope that you leave this space feeling inspired, encouraged, and more confident in yourself and your own teaching abilities. Welcome to the show, everybody. As you guys know, I am still in my series, Teachers on the Frontline, Pandemic Teaching. So I am so thrilled today to bring you guys another episode. I kind of took a bit of a break, but guess what? We're still in the pandemic. So here we are. Here we are. Um, I have a wonderful, wonderful teacher, um, educator. I don't want to say teacher, educator. And she's going to be sharing with us today. So go ahead, introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Danielle, and I'm so inspired to be here and just listening to your introduction um, gives me goosebumps, so thank you. Um, My name is Patricia Cerqueira Seidler, and I get to facilitate third grade at a two-way immersion school, public school in um, Maryland, and I facilitate in Spanish. So I actually have two sets of students' um, classes. I teach one set in the morning in Spanish, then they go off in the afternoon to English, and then I get that that class that was in the morning in English comes to me in the afternoon for Spanish. Uh, and we alternate uh, weeks. So one week I'll teach language arts, Spanish language arts, and the next week I'll teach math in Spanish. The same thing happens in English. In English, one week is um, math and English when I'm doing Spanish language arts, and then we swap and um, English will go to language arts when I'm doing math and Spanish. Patricia, that is incredible. Just, I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm always very fascinated by the dual emergent programs when the students can get so immersed in language. I think that there's so many benefits. One thing about me, I've been saying, you can ask all of my friends for years and years and years, I'm like, I'm going to become fluent in Spanish. I'm going to become fluent in Spanish. I always say it, always said it as my goal, but I've been teaching myself Spanish, so I'm not where I need to be. But one thing that I do enjoy to help me with my language immersion, when it's safe and when things are going crazy, I try to travel to Spanish-speaking countries so that I can just jump in feet first with the language and I just do my thing the best that I can with the language that I've, the Spanish that I've learned. So I've been to Uh Cuba, Puerto Rico, um, a lot of different places. Um, I can't think of all of them. Uh, Of course, uh, visited uh, Mexico a few times. So just really practicing the Spanish that I can. So that's really cool that you are doing the dual language. Um, How do this, how, how do the students handle it? Like, do they pick up on the Spanish quickly? Cause you said third grade. I don't know if they previously had the Spanish emerging in like other grades. Yeah. So our program actually starts in kindergarten. um, And so we're lucky that um, our students go up and most of them have gone through the program. We do get some students who are new and we provide support in terms of students who come brand new to Spanish and haven't had it. um, Just like we would provide um, support to students who come with brand new immersion in English. So the beauty of a two-way immersion program is that all students are language learners, right? And so they're all emergent bilinguals. Um, And the amazing practice of total 
physical response, which is literally like charades all day long. Um, we connect movement to words and to vocabulary so that when students move to the next language, so if they learned um, a particular vocabulary for area with me, for example, and we're talking about arrays where we have a movement for column, we have a movement for rows, they get to learn those words in Spanish, columnas y filas, and then when they go over to English, they start to learn the same word, uh, different words for the same movement. And that really helps to bridge in your brain, make those metalinguistic connections. Yeah, that's with the huge. English and the that's Spanish. That's huge. Um, and yes. I know you guys can't see us, but she was demonstrating the different signals, the different hand and body movements. And then it's translated when they go to the English class, they can just remember, hey, this sign, this sign stands for this. Yeah, yes. that's really good to help them to learn that. And, and it just really sticks amazing. with them. I, I agree that movement piece is really big because some kids, mm. they understand better through the movement. So being able to yes. connect the language and the movement is really, really wonderful. Yes. And then, you know, we do um, linguistic supports like uh, sentence starters and visual vocabulary um, that we often provide um, pretty much daily, whether it's math or language arts. We always um, try to provide that support so students can feel successful with acquiring the, um, the language that they're acquiring, you know, because they are emergent bilinguals. Um, and the, the other piece that I think is really beautiful about two-way immersion programs is that we're guided by three pillars. And one pillar is biliteracy and bilingualism that we honor that that's where we're headed, um, grade level work. And then the third pillar, pillar is social, cultural and um, critical consciousness competence. And so everything we do is um, embedded in social, cultural competence and thinking about systems and taking a systems ideology right to the work. So um, that critical consciousness piece. So all of that really guides what we do. And it really starts with um, the work that we do with ourselves, right, as teachers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's been a, a beautiful journey in that. That is incredible. And there's a lot to unpack there, Patricia. I wanted to ask, are you a, at a public school or a charter or what, what kind of school is it? Traditional public or what kind of school is it? Yeah, it's a traditional public school, and um, we are really lucky in our county because our county has invested in um, bilingual two-way immersion uh, elementary schools. And the hope is, is that we continue to increase the two-way immersion programs, right, um, across, I would like to see it across the nation. But it is a traditional public school in the sense that it is in a large school system, and um, we are getting funded and honored as two-way immersion. Yeah, so. I was, and I was also very surprised when you said it was public because of the social, emotional, and cultural piece. Like when you mentioned that you guys are doing that, that's like really incredible because honestly, it's not happening at all places. And the fact that you are oh. doing it, and that's one of the pillars that you guys stand by is really incredible. Yes, it truly is. Um, such a blessing to know that we go in thinking about the social cultural competence of students and of ourselves, right? So that um, self-reflection um, of ourselves and of, of how we are doing the work. Um, the third pillar is social cultural competence. And 
traditionally, and as I see it for myself, is that we can't do social cultural competence work without the self-reflection, the criticality around it, right? So it, being in a program where that's expected is such um, need, it's so needed. And right now, more than ever, it allows us to do that work without, you know, having to even think of, about, is it okay to do or not okay? Of course, we're going to do that work, right? Um, and so to be in a program that is two-way immersion that allows us to have that as a guiding principle is, is everything. Now, can we unpack just for a little bit for the teachers who may not be familiar with social culture cultural immersion, like, can you unpack what it would look like doing that work with yourself? Because maybe this is new for someone and they, they feel like, whoa, and that's a lot. Can you unpack it a little bit? Yes, I can unpack it. And everything I'm sharing here has uh, nothing to do with my district or, you know, um, it, it comes informed by the professors that have taught us within the district. Um, but it really comes with my construct of, um, this idea that what the pillar is meant to do, just this is not just specific to my county, I guess is what I'm saying. Like the guiding principles of dual language instruction comes from the um, work of so many people who have been doing linguistics in this country, right? And what social, social co cultural competence invites us to do is to go beyond just looking at flags and you know foods of different countries where we understand that our students bring their full selves and all their stories and identities um, from the different places that they have been, right? And the different places where they have identified with culture. And so as a teacher, what that means for me is that um, I really believe we as teachers are called up to understand ourselves with our cultures and then how do we meet the culture and the experiences of our students in their full identities, right? In their full experiences of what that has been. And I can't possibly know that for every single student, right? And so we have guiding questions that help us really get at what does it mean to be social, have social and cultural competence? And it's, um, Dr. Medina, he's uh, on Instagram as well. He's been a key teacher in my journey where um, he really invites us to ask these questions of who am I? What do I believe? How do I want to serve? And what are the key pieces that have brought me to this place of serving as a teacher and as an educator, right? And he invites us to that work um, as many, I think, um, teachers in our field have invited us to this work, um, whether it be like Bell Hooks or Paulo Freire, um, Dr. Bettina Love, Dr. Goldie Mohammed, they're inviting us to really think critically about who we are and who our students are in their full identity as they see culture and as they see stories that have impacted them as they've walked through, you know, socially in their lives. That is so incredible. And one thing that I, that stood out to me when you were talking, going beyond flags, you know, how many days have we heard, oh, we're going to have International Day and we show yes. up with just 
cute food and a flag, but allowing our students to show up in their full selves, their full identity, and also creating that safe space where they feel that they can show up fully as who they are is so, so incredible. And I love those guiding questions that you mentioned, because I think one thing that is going to help our listeners with as they're processing through this, is going to help them to say, okay, this is something that I can do, you know, just in case they haven't been exposed to these teachings that you're talking about. So yeah, absolutely. And I, I do I encourage, I mean, I, I thank you for that because I really encourage that part of social cultural competence is this idea that we are forever learning, right? And so when, when I say beyond flags, like I have flags in my classroom with color flags, like we identify that as a jump off point. I mean, that is beautiful. I'm from Brazil. So like everything pretty much I do has to do with, you know, um, that initial identity. And I think that the more we learn, the more we understand, right? And one key piece um, that I would encourage is, you know, as I said, Dr. Jose Medina, um, he's uh, at Jose Medina 1000, I think on Instagram, he really has so many resources, but so many um, teachers are doing this work, right? Um, Professors are encouraging us to really do our learning and, and think through what is our identity, what is our culture, the implications for that for teachers who are in a progression of not yet understanding their own culture, the work is going to be profound because the system was made for some of us to think we have culture and for other of us to think we don't have culture, right? True. true. And I think that being in a two-way immersion program and having to explore this really creates it to where we understand that we all have culture, we all have stories, we all have identities. And when we understand that within ourselves and we do that work within ourselves, we're able to really facilitate the, the work within our classrooms and with our students and welcome their full identities. Yes, incredible, absolutely incredible. And like you were saying about the cultural piece, I think sometimes, you know, the society wants to define what our, what our culture is. And allowing mm-hmm. the teacher to go on that self-discovery journey, if that is necessary, will mm-hmm. in part help those students. Because also yes. students are dealing with that as well. The culture trying to define what their culture is and not seeing themselves mm-hmm. represented, you know, yes. in different media Absolutely. and different things like that. So it really does go deep. And it's a lot of deep, deep work that needs to be done just around yes. cultural competency, but I'm, oh my gosh, I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> so can you tell me, do you want to talk anything about COVID, what that's looked like? It's up to you though. Yes. Like what, tell me, Absolutely. tell me the things. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, as I was thinking about reflecting on what are some key points um, that I wanted to bring up as a teacher, right? Um, and one of the key pieces is that Whether we're teachers or not, we know that COVID and this pandemic has shifted each and every one of us, right? And it has absolutely impacted the way we do things, whether in our personal lives, our professional lives, and um, beyond, right? And and if we see ourselves as non-compartmentalized beings, then we know that we have been changed, right, In, in many ways. One thing that I noticed from the linearity and the top-down ways of any, of most school systems that are public traditional school systems in this country is that that linearity and that hierarchy of top-down policy and power 
has not shifted much for most of us. Not really at all, honestly. Right. Which what that translates to, in my understanding, is our ability to innovate and be creative like we had to be in the Zoom. <laughs> like we had to be when True. things <laughs> shut down. Like here in Maryland, it was like March 13th. March 12th, I was like, oh, let me get the baggies with the scissors and the glue. And like, yes. we'll be gone for two weeks. A week, maybe. You know, yeah, yeah. You know? And then it, all of a sudden I was like, oh, we had, like, we had no idea. Yeah. And in absolutely. that time, absolutely. we are being so creative to adapt. And as you know, as teachers, we are extremely creative, right? We have and to yet, be. Yeah. And we exist in these systems that are absolutely not for creativity, not for circular ways, and certainly not for innovation. Yeah. If you think of power and policy. You're, you're right about that because it's like when um, the opportunity presents itself to be creative, you know, the educator is getting pushback from the administrative no 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 not that creative no 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 I actually don't want you to think outside of the box like that so it's like oh you know scripted you know and it's terrible it's terrible because like you were talking about it zaps creativity Wait, and I mean we live in a profession where there is teachers pay teachers right like every day I'm like wow that really unfolded as a professional thing like Teachers pay teachers exists, right? Because they're, we are highly creative people because we work with children, because we want to do this work. We're passionate. We are silly. We are unicorns. Like we are everything, right? And yet, if you take a step back, and I believe our administrators are as well. I think our district people are as well. But I think we are all in this very top-down linear way that is like policy and power rests the most at the top, like in the very far away place from the classroom. And the really well-meaning policies sometimes or the, the thinking behind it that went from, you know, gathered from research that was done, gathered this data. And so it's like, we're going to make this policy. It comes from such a very far away place that by the time it hits the ground, like where we as teachers are the implementers, we the building level folks are implementing policy. I recognize that we're implementing policy that's often misaligned with our students and their needs and the essence of who they are. Yeah, it can be completely misaligned, you know, especially yes. if you even get into like the testing craze, but I know that's a, a topic of a whole nother conversation, but I don't feel like students should be tested to death in the midst of this pandemic, but that was no. something that was definitely happening. Like we need to get these scores. We need to check these reading levels. We need to move these kids. We, we are behind. You must get them ahead. We must catch them up, yes. you know? And it's yes. like almost a lack of empathy for what the students have been through and even mm -hmm. the educators everyone is experiencing this pandemic yes. yet we find business as usual so yes. is that kind of is it so that's absolutely it is we have shifted as um i would even argue as a, a collective human experience that is you know shifted us it's shifted our children it's shifted everybody who's along the you know hierarchy of our system. And yet 
how we do business as usual, as you said, has not shifted because the power of, of policy is still coming from the same exact place with pretty much the same structure that is hierarchical and linear. And so you end up having us um, in school level, right? Having, and, and I believe in district level, everyone went into the complexity that it was to shift into lockdown pandemic teaching, right? Um, or reopen during the pandemic. All of that required a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation. And yet what governs outcomes that we want to see comes from policy, right? Um, Dr. Ibram Kendi really informs us in terms of like what the outcomes are not determined by people, it's determined by the policies we've put into place. And so we kept so much of the same policies that were already not working before the pandemic, like the testing, as you mentioned, that I, I like to describe it like the dragons we were slaying in public education before the pandemic, they became amplified during the pandemic, right? So we were already knowing that That's testing good. was, yeah, they became even bigger. But you know what? Teachers were already quitting, entering teacher programs much before the pandemic, right? In 2019, I believe it was Oklahoma, their programs were down 80% in yeah. teacher program enrollment. Yeah, right? I just yeah, I just put out an episode, I think, last week about how they had to scrap some of their education programs because now they have hardly anyone in Oklahoma. So you're right about that. I Absolutely. just put out that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And yet we don't go and say, oh, the policy needs to change so that our outcome is different, right? Because we don't, it's almost like we don't even understand how policy is at play. But I think this is the moment, the part where I find so much hope <laughs> is that I really believe this is the moment that as teachers, because we're implementing policy that's so misaligned and we see the outcomes that are misaligned with what the needs of our students are, that this is the moment that we start to see ourselves not just as policy implementers, but really as how can we co-create policy from the ground up and then kind of flip, or at least if not make the system a little less top down and a little more, um, you know, circular, maybe oval. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're talking about making it move on policy. Yeah, I think we got a little bit, uh, the, the signal got a little cross, but you were talking mm -hmm. about making it a bit more sustainable at the yes. educator level and, you know, what we're doing in our classrooms, how that can inform the policy that's in play at the district or at, at the head office level, right? Yes, absolutely. And having opportunities to have policy. I mean, how much more research do we need than what's happening at the pulse, right, of the classroom and of the school, and then using that to inform how we innovate and create. And I have a couple examples. So like one example right now is um, the shortage of substitutes, right? Um, we have had a shortage of substitutes. Um, we know that teacher mental health is not well, and we know that we are needing time off or we are needing more time to do the work that we need to do. And yet, um, we continue to think that a five day a week, uh, you know, way of school. Yeah, the structure of that week. The structure of that week for a teacher, what that means is we are asking, we've always asked of teachers, 
this interesting experience, which is to be emotionally connected and relating to students, which is, I think, primary to every teacher is the relationships we build. We relate to on a, on, you know, a small classroom would be like 20 students, 18 students. In a monolingual school, you have one set of 18 students that you're with about four to six hours a day in elementary level. And we're asking, so we're asking teachers to relate to students in a meaningful way, 18 of them at a time for four to six hours a day, five days a week. The emotional piece of that for any adult, right? is pretty intense. And we can understand that. And, and when we're not even thinking about changing the structure of the five-day week, we are missing an opportunity to innovate. And what I mean is we still have kids in school for five days a week, but maybe one day a week is more like a summer camp kind of day. We employ people who are already experts in being with children, working with children, playing with children, you know, exercising with children, doing all the things fun that let's say a summer camp would do, but you do that one day a week on a specific day. And you know that you're going to allow teachers and building level folks to have one day to really reflect, have the meetings they need to have. If they have appointments, they can go do appointments without needing a substitute. There are different ways to play with that. And I know that this sounds, you know, like we're asking for teachers to have a four day week, but the reality is, is the pandemic taught us, right? And it taught families at home too, to connect with children for that many hours emotionally is beautiful and intense. And when we're doing it in a pandemic, it requires a lot of thought and reflection. And I believe that what we're seeing is that overload, right? That burnout of yeah. being in a very intense situation extend, like for a very extended period of time. I agree. I agree. And I really do love what you suggested about changing that structure. And I really hadn't thought about um, allowing the students to be in-house on that day. It makes so much sense because you could even call it, you know, fun Wednesday or something, you know what I'm saying? You know, market it to the parents. This is the day that the students will be participating in physical exercise, you know, you know, which is good for them anyways, right? You know, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be in the school building in a way that is about movement, it is about rhythm. I mean, we talk about trauma informed teaching, you know, rhythm is critical. Movement is critical for any kind of, um, you know, play, renovate, like renovating your energies, but also healing, right? And when we understand that that is a need of students and we put it into place beyond the testing, beyond the the 2D, you know, pencil and paper experience, we're going to see some different experiences. And from the standpoint of economy, we have plenty of artists, summer camp folks looking for, you know, income and and work to be supplemented, right? Because the pandemic, we have plenty of um, experts in movement and rhythm that could come in. 
And if you think about it, just being one day a week in each school, you can logistically, it's more doable, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you could even rotate the person if you were doing it in different mm-hmm. schools. Like, let's say you brought in like two or three different artists and mm-hmm. who were involved in different artistic things and they spent the day with the kids, you know, block it up and two hours here, two hours here, two hours there. Those same group of artists can go the next day to another school. You know, if, you know, it's a lot of different ways that we could do it. And I really love how you're talking about the innovativeness. That's what mm-hmm. is needed. And that's what is yes. missing from the picture. Because like you said, the policies have been the same forever. We continue being a dead horse it's not working so many teachers are quitting but what can we do in this current climate of education to make things more sustainable yeah so I think the the more sustainable piece is really seeing ourselves in the school building level as um, having a path to inform change that is needed right now right and the way I think we do that is one is by starting to think of ourselves as policymakers, but two, really to ground in the reality of um, what I like to call the math of teaching. So right now, our policies, the most of the outcomes we want from our policies are um, a standard you know, classroom of about 18 to 25 in most districts, I would say. Some are upwards of 30 in the elementary school. We want a linear curriculum. That means most curriculums are linear in that you do this particular unit at this time of year, and then you move on to the next one. Whether or not your students got the concept and mastered it, you keep going, right? Some some propose that to be circular and they kind of come back to some concepts, but for the most part, we follow a linear trajectory. And then the other key piece is the testing, right? We want to be able to test students and we want to be able to know where they're reading, and where their, you know, where their reading levels are, but we've taken the teacher kind of away from that too, because now we give them a test to know where they're teaching instead of, um, you know, the typical running record and um, talk about a book and really understand the passions of the student around reading and, and what they, they love, what they don't love. And those are the key policies that we have in place right now. Now, if you do the math of how this unfolds the outcome is we have teachers with 18 to 20 students let's say if at the end of the day we spend five minutes with the work one piece of work of each student for five minutes to reflect okay where are my mathematicians today (laughs) right let's say I did math I did four other subjects but I'm only going to look at math and I spend five minutes You take 20 students, five minutes of my time to sit and think critically about what the student needs, what they got, what they didn't get, and what am I going to do next for that particular student? Because differentiation is an outcome that we're expected to have, to do, and to practice. I need 100 extra minutes in my day, aside from email, connecting with parents, planning with my team, and connecting with staff. So I need 100 extra minutes to do that level of reflection. And that's where I say we need that Wednesday, right? We need that one day in the the week where kids go to like a fun camp. So teachers can take the five minutes for math to think about the next thing. Because what we are doing is we're doing that in our own time. 
after we've spent our eight hours of contract hours, we, we take all of that home. Which is so unfortunate. And I know a lot of teachers do it. I, that was something that I tried my best to absolutely mm-hmm. not do, but it's just yeah. not enough hours, of, like you said, to get it done. Because when we take it home, we rob ourselves of time to unwind from the day because of the emotional strain that you know yeah. we talked about earlier. And then also yeah. taking time away from our own families. So yeah. it's really, it's really tough. It is really tough. Absolutely. And I don't encourage it. And this has been a year where I, I don't have to give, right? Like I'm done. I, I do my work. I do my work fully intentionally and connected when I'm there. And then yes, for, for us to be well with our families and for us to be our whole selves, we need to be able to walk away as well. But our policies are completely misaligned with the fact that we are doing this work while also being fully human <laughs> and doing this work because it is a work of service and it's a work of love. And that work and that service also requires replenishing and well-being, right? And so I believe to your question, where do we go from here? I believe we need to be collective at the ground level, partner up because the risk is too great to start, you know, doing it ourselves in our own classrooms a lot of times. And so if we can partner up with teachers that are thinking about innovation, thinking about, you know, as we are, and we find that collective of like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm thinking this, how are you feeling about this one particular ask that we were, you know, this policy that we were told to do, how are you feeling about it? How can we propose a different solution and what might it look like, right? So we need to be collective. We need to have a group of colleagues who are willing to do the work of redesign, right? Of redesigning that which we're being asked to do. So collective peace is huge. Um, I believe we also need to remember that we can be circular. (laughs) So in a linear in a linear existence that we are, we need to remember that we can try things out. We can experiment. We can experiment. And then we can go to our students and say, how did that work? You know, like we tried this new thing. How did that work? Okay. We're going to tweak it, get some feedback from your collective of colleagues and and students, and then try something a little bit different, tweak it. Um, I believe that when we start to be more circular, we disrupt some of this linearity and the hierarchies that are in place that aren't allowing for innovation and creativity. I agree. And it's got to start at the classroom level. It's got to start Mm -hmm. at the classroom level. Absolutely. Um, This has just really been incredible. Um, Can you tell everyone, Patricia, where they can find you at online so that they can study more about what you're doing and your Instagram and things like that? How can people contact you? Absolutely. So I um, am on Instagram mostly. And um, my name there is Patricia underscore another way. And Patricia is just um, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A. So Patricia underscore another way. And um, I I did a series that I'm going to start back up, which is um, Another Way Wednesday, where I do about 10 minute snippets of So what does it mean to 
be collective and co-create something with your students and um, your colleagues. And, and I think we're all already doing this. We're just not seeing ourselves as policymakers and taking it to that place where it's like, oh, we're going to build from the ground up, right? Yes, absolutely love it. I cannot wait to check out more of the series because I know it's going to be awesome when you start it back up. So everyone definitely Wonderful. connect with her on Instagram because she's doing some really, really incredible things, just challenging us to really dig deeper in the work that we're already doing in the classroom. So again, I can't thank you enough, Patricia, for agreeing to be with me to sit in this space to share your knowledge this has been a incredible podcast episode if you are listening go ahead and give us a rating wherever you're listening to your podcast it's going to help um, the show get into other ears of wonderful listeners like yourself but that's all we have for today and um we will talk with you guys again in the next episode Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much Danielle. Thank, thank you, you thank so you. all the ways you serve and, and do this amazing work. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Thank you.